Well, last Sunday, I began a series, or actually two Sundays ago, on supernatural protection. And we've talked about everything from Psalm 91, the secret place, the habitation of the Lord, uh, to the fact last week that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, rulers of darkness in high places. And God has equipped us accordingly with special armor that we can engage the enemy with. Today I wanna continue talking about supernatural protection by addressing the foundation of that protection, things we need to know in order for that protection to become a reality in our life. Let's take a look at, uh, first of all, at Philippians chapter three. Well, I guess I'm gonna have to do the glasses trick again. Philippians chapter three, verse 10. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. I'd like to read verse 10 to you from uh, the Amplified rendering. Verse 10 from the Amplified. Well, you know what? I guess I don't have the Amplified available. But it says in the beginning of the Amplified translation, it is my determined purpose to know him, to know him and the power of his resurrection and as we just read. And so I want you to see if it's Paul's determined purpose, that needs to be our determined purpose as well. And as we just read the two verses in the King James, verse 11 again said, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now I think we should understand Paul's not looking to be raised physically from the dead when he dies or if something happens to him and he gets raised as much as it is a broad understanding that we have to have. I think most other translations may refer to a spiritual or moral resurrection, but rightly understood it's resurrection from the touch of death and all of the shapes it may take wherever it shows up in our life. And of course, you know, death takes many forms. Death is not to be interpreted or translated is annihilation or simply ceasing to exist. It is instead separation. Spiritual death, for instance, is separation of the human spirit from God. Biological death is a separation of our spirit from our physical bodies. Relational death is a separation that unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, can generate between two people. That's physical or relational death. Financial death occurs when your need is separated from available resource. <clears throat> so death takes a lot of different forms and it's usual, gradu usually gradual in its onset. Sometimes it happens instantaneously, uh, but most usually it's gradual, the aging process or a sickness that begins its progression. But Paul is praying 
if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Resurrection, of course, is a reference of being raised from the dead or dead circumstance to the life, the blessing that only God can bring. And he says, if by any means, whenever dead circumstances encroach upon my life, uh, I believe if by any means, it's my desire to attain to resurrection, to the life of God and the blessing of God. And the verse prior to this, verse 10, is those means. These are the means by which he will be able to attain under resurrection. This is an appropriate message, certainly, as we're approaching Easter. But there are three things he said should be involved in attaining unto the resurrection of the dead. First is that I may know him, then I may know the power of his resurrection, And remember, Paul said it's his determined purpose to know these things. Sure, it should be ours as well. To know him, to know the power of his resurrection, and to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Now, that's where a lot of people get off this boat right here. We don't like to hear about, you know, uh, fellowshipping with suffering. Seems to be enough of that in the world as it is but it says his sufferings. So we need to understand what Jesus suffered principally during his time on this earth. He didn't suffer sickness or disease. He didn't suffer poverty or lack. Contrary to some religious misconception, just because the Bible said the Son of Man had no place to lay his head, didn't mean he was steeped in poverty. It just meant he had a traveling ministry. He moved around all of the time. Jesus didn't experience poverty, quite to the contrary. It's um, most usually agreed by commentaries that he had 60 to 70 people travel with him everywhere he went. And for the most part, he supported them. As a matter of fact, there was so much resource He had to have a treasurer carry the bag. And when it was time to pay taxes, he went fishing and got a coin out of the fish's mouth and took care of his obligation. Jesus was anything other than poor. He didn't experience poverty. He didn't experience sickness and disease. He didn't experience oppression. He didn't experience the dissolution of relationships that he'd entered into. No, he didn't experience any of these things. Those are none of the things that he suffered. He suffered in two basic ways, the same as all humans will. First of all, because of his preaching of the word, he suffered persecution. The view of life that he represented was alien to the religious leaders of his day and everyone else. And a lot of persecution came his way consummating, of course, in his crucifixion. Now, most of us don't know the real meaning of persecution living in America, but if you are living on the basis of the word of God and are the least bit verbal about it, persecution will come. You don't need to look for it, it'll come. So you will experience that. Jesus suffered that. But the primary thing Jesus had to deal with was the flesh that he had taken on to do the work of redemption. He was a man. 
suffered everything the Bible says that is common to man or experienced those things, those temptations, those, those difficulties. He tasted them. And the basic thing that he suffered was the denial of his flesh. He had to say no to the carnal nature of man. He had to say no to self-interest and self-concern. And that brings a certain level of suffering to bear in the human experience because everyone has the same knee-jerk response to life. And that is, what about me? And of course, in order to experience resurrection, you're going to have to get beyond self-concern. And it's painful when you do. Self-interest, what your flesh wants. Sometimes it's tough to say no to another piece of pie or something your flesh would like to have. It can be a form of suffering and that's what Jesus suffered. So when we have been able to fellowship or come into one or unity or connection with his kind of suffering, which is what we experience when we say no to our carnal nature, when we say no to the demands of our flesh. There will be a pain that's generated and that is one of the things we need to know if by any means we're going to attain unto resurrection from dead circumstance. So I thought it needful to get that out of the way first. Not gonna spend a lot of time on it. The first thing that we're told we must do to attain unto the resurrection is to know him, to know him. The Amplified, you should read it. If you got one handy or pull it up on your device, uh, it expands the understanding of knowing him in a close, intimate, personal way, knowing him experientially. And that's something that transcends just knowing about him. Knowing him and then knowing the power of his resurrection. And the Amplified says, exerted in the life of the believer. The power of the resurrection is something we'll talk more about next Sunday, Easter Sunday. Today I wanna focus on knowing him because it's a pretty broad subject, but one that I think the Word of God makes clear to us. There are two principal aspects to knowing him. Certainly we need to read the word about him, learn about him, but on a deeper, more intimate basis, we need to know him in two ways that the word really emphasizes. And the first can be demonstrated by what this Sunday is. This is Palm Sunday. This is the, the Sunday that uh, we celebrate his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as king as Messiah. And of course, that's something that the Jews of that day were well aware of. They knew the prophetic scripture. And if you wanna go to Zechariah 9, 9 and read about it, uh, well, we might as well turn there, take a moment and just read the, the word in that regard. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, 
lowly or meek, as some translations say, gentle, as others would say, and riding upon a donkey and upon a colt, the foal of a donkey, about as humble as you can get. And this is the, uh, the reference that was being made to what Jesus did on Palm Sunday. As he approached the Mount of Olives, he sent his disciples ahead to, to get a donkey and the foal of a donkey and bring them to him. And then he mounted the donkey and made his entry. And as he did, the people recognized the prophetic implication. This is the king, the Messiah, that has been promised he's coming. And of course, the effect, the impact on the world in verse 10 of Zechariah 9, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace unto the heathen. That doesn't necessarily mean bad or pagan. It simply is a reference to the Gentiles, the unbelievers. And he'll speak peace unto the whole world, which at this point was limited to a single covenant with a single people. And his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. So the Jews of his day knew exactly what was being proclaimed as he made his triumphal entry on the foal of a donkey. And of course, you know, they threw their cloaks on the ground in front of him, which, which was emblematic in that day of submitting your life to the rulership of a king. And then they followed with the palm fronds and boughs and uh, threw those down for him to come across. And in Jewish culture, the palm frond was emblematic or symbol, symbolic of victory. And then he made his entry on the foal of a donkey. So here we have a mighty king, victorious in ways that we uh, would find interesting to study. And I don't know if I can resist the temptation to make this point. The King James says, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just. Many translations use the word righteous or right king or righteous king and having salvation. And that's the way the King James rendered it. If you have an indeceased Bible, uh, you'll see the center reference column says, saving himself. So the word salvation has a little different connotation than most people would immediately grasp. Certainly he comes offering salvation to all those who enter into his kingship, who accept his kingship, who submit their lives to it. Yes, he brings salvation from our sin, from that which separates us from God and consigns us to spiritual death. He brings salvation, no question about it. But the old text, the literal Hebrew means saving himself. Now the Greek word for save, as is true in the Hebrew also, means more than simply, and this is the most profound meaning, saving us from our sin. But it also means saving in a literal sense, saving from destruction, protection, deliverance. And so we can see this is looking forward to the cross saving himself from death, 
from consignment to hell and death by resurrection from the dead. The people that were welcoming him didn't see that at the moment, but a few days later they would understand. Many of them would come to understand that his victory was a lot greater than that of a simple battle. It was a victory that consigned death and hell forever to regions beyond the experience of the believer. And so essentially he entered as king, a just righteous king, the right king. And of course those that throw their cloaks on the ground and submit, recognize his kingship, experience the result of his righteous rule and his righteousness even becomes their own. And he's a victorious king, not just in the sense of a literal physical victory in a battle of some sort, but victory over hell and death. A victorious king, again, able to offer his subjects a part of that victory, their being able to enjoy the spoil or the fruit of that victory. And then lastly, he came meekly. The word meek has an interesting definition. It actually means power under control. A lot of times we think meek might mean weak, something to that effect. It means power under control. Of course, a king uh, is endued with all of the power necessary to rule his kingdom. But in the case of God Almighty, it's unlimited power. He is the creator of the universe. He had enough power to do anything, and yet he comes humbly, meekly, that power being controlled for the purpose of addressing the need in the lives of those who are subject to his kingship. One translation or a couple actually use the word gentle. Jesus is a gentle king a loving king that extends his power to his constituency uh, in order to address need that exists in their lives. And so we see that we need to first of all know him as we celebrate this Palm Sunday. Indeed is our king. Put the cloak of our lives before him. Submit everything that we are. Surrender our will to him as our king. And he is a victorious king, able to impart to you a victory over the touch of death and hell as it comes to you in any arena of your life. And a gentle, loving king that is always there to address your need at any point in time. We need to know him this way, as king. And of course, we'll be celebrating more of this truth on Easter Sunday and talking about the second thing that uh, Philippians 3.10 told us we need to know, and that's the power of his resurrection. But the Bible goes on to say that it's not enough now just to know him as king. There is another revelation of how he wants us to know him that's hugely important to each of us and that we need to spend a little time uh, looking into. Now, I've actually taught from this passage of Scripture 
a few months ago, so if you were in that service, you probably are going to get your mind renewed, which is a good thing. But let's turn to Psalm 23 for just a moment. Psalm 23, and uh, there's another aspect to his kingship that he, that he extends to us, or I should say progression from our knowing him as king. In verse one of Psalm 23, we read simply, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord, of course, <clears throat> excuse me, is a reference to your having made him the final authority in your life, your king. So this is for someone who can say, he is my Lord. And of course, the process of being able to say that begins with your decision to surrender your will, your life to his kingship. But he says once that occurs, then he is also to be known as your shepherd. That means someone who protects and guides, someone who nurtures and takes care of the flock. The analogy is used throughout the word. And of course, nowhere more than in the New Testament and the New Covenant, we are told repetitively over and over again that, you know, in a variety of ways, uh, Jesus is referred to as our chief shepherd the chief shepherd. And of course, you know, uh, we need to know him as our shepherd. So I think it's beneficial for us to consider the passages of, of scripture that will tell us how we enable him to be our shepherd. It begins with his lordship. Nothing we read in Psalm 23 is going to apply unless he indeed is your Lord. But then you need to come to know him also as your shepherd. And if you do, the result is simple. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I love the passion translation of this verse says, the Lord is my shepherd and my friend. I always have more than enough. When you have no want, then you have more than enough. Anything that comes in after that, after all of your wants, your needs, and then your wants are addressed, you have more than enough. And so that's the, the fruit of learning to know him as your shepherd. You'll always have more than enough. Now don't get aggravated with me. If you've heard a, a, you know, a religious reading that would suggest that's not the case, we need to... Uh, Get away from the wants and just serve him. True, we do, no matter what our condition in life. But if you're gonna follow his lead and he's gonna be your shepherd, then you will discover that you always have more than enough. The balance of Psalm 23 is a snapshot of the progression to that place. It ends up in verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Doesn't matter if there's a coronavirus going on, some other plague, some other hardship, some other difficulty. You can come to a place where surely goodness and mercy are gonna follow you all the days of your life. 
This is the end result of knowing him not only as your king and bowing your life before him and celebrating the truth of his coming, but knowing him as your shepherd. And the progression we see culminates in that truth, goodness and mercy, following you all the days of your life. So let's look at verse two. The first thing that he is going to see to it, lead you to, bring you to a conclusion that is necessary, is making you to lie down in green pastures. And the, you know, the terminology that is used here is interesting to me. Uh, because God's not going to override your free moral agency and make you lie down. So I think uh, the understanding we need to have of this, uh, this verbiage, the way this is expressed, is that he is going to always be there for you as it gets darker and harder throughout the days of your life and you get busier and more confused. You're going to come to a point where you have to lie down, you have to rest. And so he says that he will uh, see to it that you lie down in green pastures, which means it's a comfortable place, it's a blessed place. And it's a place where nurture can be found. Nurture for a flock meant green grass. And of course the, the analogy for us is there's gonna be a time perhaps multiple times during the course of a believer's life when you, you begin getting too busy in what you're doing. Your life gets more frustrating and confusing with every day until you come to a place where you have to rest. And then the Lord will see to it that that rest is supernatural in its origin and it'll bring nurture to your life lying down in green pastures. Not so much a physical place, although, you know, there are places that I think every believer has uh, that are especially restful. You know, Hebrews says this is not gonna be an easy thing. You're gonna have to get out from under the cares and the anxiety, the worry, the fear that is always the result uh, of a life that is pressing forward in its own strength, you're gonna have to get out from under that. And there's a, a restful place. Maybe for you, depending on your personality and your likes and dislikes, it might be in a fishing boat somewhere, on a quiet lake. It could be in a tree, uh, in a tree stand somewhere out in the woods. I, I, love, I love that environment. Uh, you know, creation is all around you. Wildlife is all around you. Uh, you get really rested. You can get, you can let down and begin getting the benefit of what God is speaking to you in that kind of environment. And so lying down in green pastures and experiencing a rest that will begin the process of rejuvenation. It's better if you come to this conclusion on your own Read the word, know you're gonna have to give yourself times of rest. That's what the Sabbath was all about. You know, making yourself cease from your own labor, your own effort, working to solve your problems in your own strength, being inundated by all of the confusion and the many voices that are in this world, finding a place 
of rest. If you know this is something you need to do, you can be proactive in planning time away. Each day, each week, you'll know when you need it. But I would start out each day lying down, resting, receiving from him. And then he says, after you've rested and rejuvenation has begun, now you can get up and begin movement. He says that he's going to lead you. But now he's gonna lead you by still waters. When you've been resting, it doesn't matter if it's a raging torrent. It doesn't matter if the storm is blowing. It's gonna seem like still waters to you because you've begun receiving nurture from him in this place of rest. Now he can begin leading you. You can get back uh, into the things that you need to do in this life, but it's gonna be like there's still waters. This is analogous to the peace that we see in the new covenant, referred to as a peace that passes all understanding because the circumstance can be anything but peaceful, yet you've got that peace garrisoning about your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, even as God leads you through your day. So we see the progression from rest and then the process of, of uh, refreshing beginning and then movement through your day and into your life. It's gonna be like still waters because the peace of God is garrisoning about your heart and mind. And it's this rest and this peace, as in verse three we see, will begin the process of restoring your soul. No, actually it consummates the process of restoring your soul. It says, now he restores <coughs> your soul. And your soul has to be restored before you can be useful to yourself or to God. Remember, we are a spirit, we have a soul, and we live in a body. Your soul determines which controls the direction your life takes. Your spirit, the real you, or the direction that your shepherd brings you in that manner? Or is it gonna come from the world around you and direct your physical uh, activity based on physical demands? It's your soul that decides that. Your soul is where your free moral agency resides. Your soul is a three-part consideration as well. The mind, your free moral agency called your will, and your emotions. And your will is always activated in a way that reflects the interaction between what you're thinking and how you're feeling. What you're thinking and how you're feeling produces a decision. And so if your soul isn't restored by the rest and the peace that is a progression, to a restored soul, then you're likely to be making wrong decisions for death and cursing instead of life and blessing. But now that your soul is restored, he can lead you in paths of righteousness. Now you're making right decisions and he can lead you the right way, right behavior. This isn't a matter of screwing up your willpower and trying to change your behavior legalistically. It'll flow out of a restored soul that your shepherd has brought you to this place and now he can lead you in paths of righteousness. Things that are gonna produce the blessing that he wants you to have 
And it says for his name's sake that he wants people to see through you because people are gonna draw conclusions about you, about God rather, through you. And so it's for his name's sake, for his sake, as well as he loves you and he wants you blessed, but he wants your behavior to reflect his truth so people can see him through you. That's why the Bible says your life is a written epistle. So we see the progression. Going from rest, now movement uh, in your life by still waters, the peace of God garrisoning you about. The restored soul is the result. Your mind and your Emotions have been restored and will interact properly to produce good decisions. And now God can begin leading you rightly in this life. And people will see him through you. Now you're prepared for the valley of the shadow of death. And nobody wants to talk about that, but it's life on this earth. He says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he doesn't say if, you will. As Jesus said, there is tribulation in this world. It is already there. There's a lot of evil out there doing war with good, with light. And of course, you're gonna walk through valleys, it should be plural, of the shadow of death throughout your tenure on this earth in your physical body. But he said, if you've gone through this process consummating with the restoration of your soul and your life behavior is reflecting God to all who would see, now you're prepared to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. Because you're mindful always of the fact that thou art with me. I'm not going to get sidetracked by discussing the danger, the poison that fear is. Just briefly, fear operates on the same principle faith does. A man is as he thinketh or believes in his heart. If you're believing all of the negative circumstance that's out there, it'll produce fear. That's what you're believing. And your believing will take you toward what you don't want to go toward. Fear's deadly. So you can't have fear in your life. And he said you can walk through the valley of the shadow if you are conscious that God is with you. The same one that led you to the resting place, that led you by the still waters, that restored your soul, that changed your lifestyle. And your lifestyle now speaks volumes about God to others. The same God is with you in the valley of the shadow of death. So you have no need to fear any evil that might come against you. And you'll be reminded that his rod and his staff will comfort you right in the middle of that valley. You can gain comfort from knowing that God is with you. And his rod will provide the protection you need. His staff also, and the direction that you need to go in the midst of that darkness. 
And you'll know that. So you'll fear no evil. That's the only way to go through the valley of the shadow. And right in the middle of the biggest battle in the next verse, verse five, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Some translations say, when your enemy attacks. Right when the attack is on. He's prepared a table for you. All you gotta do is take a seat at the table. Don't bail out before you take a seat at the table and say, oh me, oh my. My enemies are attacking right now. He's prepared a table. It's there. Just open your eyes, take a look. A table represents three things. It represents nurture, nourishment, of course. And just as surely as there's nourishment for your physical body, there's nourishment for your spiritual man. That is the Word of God. There's nourishment there. There's fellowship there. And the implication is fellowship with God. A joining of hearts with your shepherd, with your Lord, with the creator of this universe. Right there, there's a table, there's an opportunity. But I think a lot of people miss it, but not realizing that oftentimes the table of fellowship he's prepared is with a person. A person that's filled with him, filled with his spirit, that he can express himself through to you. You'll find when the enemy's attacking, God will open the door to opportunities for fellowship with people that he can speak through, that he can minister life to you through. You've got to know that table is prepared for you and be looking for it. It's there. And it's there that you can receive spiritual nourishment to bring you out of the battle that you're facing as a victor. It's there that you'll know the presence of God in a special way, even though it may be through another person that he's prepared for that table to minister to you through. It could be a time when you simply are in fellowship with the Almighty. In one of these quiet times, he'll come to the table with you. His presence manifests to you. But don't forget the possibility or even probability that he'll use another person and his indwelling presence in them to minister to you through. That table is there when your enemies attack. And it'll do marvelous things for you. It goes on to say, your cup's gonna run over. Right in the middle of the attack, man, that anointing and that power of God is going to begin to fill you up Thou anointest my head with oil. That is a type of the Holy Spirit and that endowment of power within you because of his presence is going to begin running over. It's gonna begin running out and changing the shape of that attack you're under right now and beginning to manipulate the outcome of the battle so that the victory is yours. Actually, it's his, but it's his through you your victory. And it says it's gonna overflow. My cup runneth over. That means when you're in this place, this is a time to shine. View the battles, view the attacks, view the valley of the shadow, 
view that onslaught of the enemy as an opportunity to shine, my friend, because God will turn it around. You find that table of fellowship and you're gonna find your cup running over with the anointing, the empowerment of God. You're going to get excited. You're gonna see uh, ways that he's made where there was no way. You're going to be reinforced by his very presence in your life. And it's gonna affect other people around you. Those that you're in, in fellowship with in the natural that have got their own battles going. Maybe they're people you're joined with in your workplace or in your church or in your family. When your cup starts running over with the empowerment of God and the enabling ability of God, guess who's gonna get affected by that? Anybody that's close to you, anybody that's nearby, they're going to be affected by that same overcoming power, that enablement of God that is your cup running over. You're gonna win that battle and breeze through that valley. And fear doesn't have to touch you one moment while you're in the midst of it. And then he says, now he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That includes coronavirus days. That includes every day you will experience. If he is your shepherd, if you know him as your shepherd, not only your king, but you know him as your shepherd, then surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Wow. So we can understand the importance of knowing him as he says he wants to be known. Yes, it's good to know about God, gain facts and natural understanding about who he is and what he says. But there has to come a place when he becomes your king. You know him as king. You've prostrated your life before him. You have surrendered your will to him and you begin to receive him, not only as the final authority in your life, but you need to receive the victory over death and hell that he brings to you. You need to receive his gentle lovingness through which he will exercise his power to change your life. And then once he is your king, and Lord, now he wants you to know him as shepherd. Put a premium on rest and let rest take you into peace, a restored soul, paths of righteousness. When the hard places come and the valley shows up, you don't have to fear a thing. His rod and his staff are there to comfort you. And there's a table somewhere in the middle of all of this, right at the peak of the attack that he's prepared for you, that you can come to and receive the nourishment and strengthening you might need, receive the love, the fellowship, the assurance that is needed during these times, and your cup will start running over with the power of the Holy Ghost, the anointing of the Almighty, and you'll begin to experience the fruit of his being the shepherd in your life 
knowing him is the shepherd. Now, this is really good stuff, but you are going to get even more excited when you begin to know the power of the resurrection. And we'll talk about that next Sunday.